a warning. This is going to be a tough episode. It's going to be difficult listening for anyone. On this podcast, we explore organized crime, mafia, crime, murder, corruption, and forensic science. We look at the ugly side of humanity. But this week, we're going to look at two fundamental difficult questions. First, what kind of person tortures and kills innocent animals? And why do they do those things? The results of this investigation are shocking, and they reveal a surprising and very dark side of the criminal soul. I'm Declan Hill, and this is Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Waves. I'm Declan Hill, an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven. And today, my students, Eric Krebs, Aaron Griffin, and Alexia Miller, are bringing you an examination into the links between criminal psychopaths and animal cruelty. Our guest is a world-renowned expert, Virginia Maxwell, also of the University of New Haven. Professor Maxwell has her PhD from the University of Oxford. She's been a senior forensic scientist for the state of Connecticut, and she has now combined her personal and professional passions. That's to stop the mistreatment of animals and to show the connections between animal cruelty and the criminal world. And she joined us on Crime Waves. Virginia, welcome to Crime Waves. Thank you very much, Declan. Um, tell me, tell our listeners who Desmond was? Uh, well, you know, Desmond sadly was a dog like so many other dogs out there. He was a dog who was abused. He was the subject of vicious abuse, vicious torture. Um, eventually, his owners were apprehended. Desmond unfortunately had to be euthanized because of his injuries. They were too severe for him to survive. Um, but where Desmond was different was he started really an army. He started a movement within Connecticut um, because people were just so appalled. They'd had enough. And what uh, spawned out of Desmond's horrible and tragic story was a law called Desmond's Law that was passed several years ago in Connecticut, 2016. And we were the first state in the country. Now, I'm going to say right now, I was nothing to do with the passage of Desmond's Law. A lot of that, the push was from a professor from Yukon Law School, Professor Jessica Rubin, who I am honored to collaborate with now. Um, but Desmond's Law was passed. And what that allowed was that a court could appoint um, law students from the Yukon Animal Law Clinic um, or volunteer attorneys to act as animal advocates in the courtroom. Um, and this was a way that animal cases could finally get into the court because the judicial system is stretched pretty thin. Um, there are only so many people, there are only so many resources, and sadly, animal cases are very, very low priority. Um, but having the ability to have animal advocates who do the legwork for the court, they gather reports, they gather information, they make recommendations. Um, it allows prosecutors to essentially have a case put together and take it into the courtroom. Now, Virginia, let, let, let's go 
let, let's go from the detail of, of Desmond all the way up to the big bird's eye view, the 10,000 uh, foot view. Why should we care? And I don't mean on a moral sense. Obviously, we, we, all of our listeners and ourselves care about cruelty to animals. But what, why is this important? Why is animal cruelty important in criminology and organized crime? Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that animal cruelty is a predictor. Um, the statistics are overwhelming. It is a predictor of interpersonal violence. Um, and people who are cruel to animals um, will, I think about 70% of the time, go on and commit crimes against people. Sometimes the statistics are staggering. For example, 100% of people convicted of sexual homicides have abused animals um, before moving on to people. Sorry, I, I was, I was uh, doing the research um, that our producer, Eric Krebs, uh, had produced, and he, he, he indicated that in some welfare, some social welfare agencies, if they see the family abusing animals, it instantly red flags the case. It instantly red flags the thing. It absolutely does, um, because the links are so strong between animal abuse and interpersonal violence, whether it's child abuse, whether it's elder abuse, whether it is domestic violence, um, that in a lot of states, Connecticut being one of them, not all states, but in a significant number of states now, animal control officers, animal protection officers, they have different names in different states, um, cross-report with agencies who are responsible for the welfare of children and families. And so if, for example, in Connecticut, an animal control officer is called to a house because of a report from someone like a neighbor, that house is immediately red flagged in the Department of Children's and Families um, as you know, they have access to each other's reports. And oftentimes animal abuse is looked on as a window into the home um, for other agencies because it is this red flag. Right, and, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bring Bruce, uh, our partner in crime in because ever since I started talking to Bruce, about this, he's been nuts for me to watch a particular TV series. Bruce. Uh, that was Don't F With Cats. And the reason I was interested, my daughter suggested it to me, but just it's, it, it does tie that, you know, someone who's abusing animals and later goes on to harm humans. Virginia, I'm not sure if you, you know this one. I've now, because of Bruce, become you know, have watched the three, uh, three part series. And it's about um, a group of internet sleuths who see somebody posting videos of somebody killing and, and torturing animals online. Um, he became one of the most notorious uh, killers in Canadian history. I loathe the man. I loathe everything to do with him. Do, do you know that? Have you, have you, you know, is this the kind of thing that you guys talk about in laboratories and the forensics? You know, I have heard of that TV show. I must admit, I haven't watched it. Um, but yes, you know, I, I've heard of many stories. One story that jumps to mind, again, it wasn't something I was involved in, actually came about um, from a neighborhood reunion. And this was a group of, at the time, children who used to play together in the neighborhood. Um, and one of the children was just not quite like the others, you know, didn't fit in that well. Um, and one day he confessed to one of the other kids that he had killed a cat. Um, and then it transpired that he confessed to another of the kids that he had killed a different cat. 
Um, and so it was all kind of a little, a little bit weird. Well, you know, fast forward many, many years, um, and there is now all of these children um, in their middle age, and they decide, well, we want to have a reunion. And so they start putting out on Facebook that, you know, anyone who lived on this street, get in touch. And what happens is the person who is organizing all of this gets a call from a federal agency saying, we're looking for that individual too in connection with several murders. Um, and so this was very interesting that here you have this, you know, someone who was starting by killing neighbors' cats. Um, and then eventually he's now being wanted. He's being hunted by federal agencies for murdering people. So very similar type of idea. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Um, listen, going through um, the copious magazine and journal articles that have been quoted you and things, I, I came across something in a magazine I never heard of before, Evidence Magazine. Uh, presumably it's for, for smart people like you, forensic scientists. And there was a quote from you saying, Animals can't communicate. They can't talk. So we have to do the following. Can you, can you tell us about that process and, and that thought process? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's one of the big differences between an investigation where you have a human victim, a, a living human victim, um, and you have a living animal as the victim. Because if you, if you have a human, you can interview them. You can ask them what happened, who did this to you, does it hurt, what happened, you know, how many, over what time period did this happen? You can't do that with a dog or a cat or any other type of animal. Uh, and so what is critically important and, you know, documentation and photos and video are important in any investigation. Um, but video and photographs, if you're doing an animal investigation, are incredibly important. Um, because if you can video the way an animal behaves, you've got the volume, you've got the, the movement, you've got the video, um, and you show that to a veterinarian at a later date, they can assess the amount of pain that animal was in. They can look at the way an animal is walking. They can look at the noises an animal is making. They can look at how an animal responds to particular individuals. They can look at how an animal responds to being given food and water. Um, all those, things, those, those things are important, Virginia, because as you were saying in your article, you know, a court proceeding takes some time. And by six months later, you may have kept that animal in a kennel. They may be well fed. They may, they may not be able to have that memory or who knows, or that communication. So those forensic laboratory stuff and, and videos are incredibly important. They, they are, because if you have, I mean, neglect is possibly one of the most common forms, really is the most common form of animal cruelty. It's considered a passive animal cruelty. Um, but if you have an animal that is starved, you know, it's dehydrated and it's starved, um, when the police or the animal control officers respond to the location, um, if you don't take those photos right there and then, if you don't take that video, if you don't show where the food, is there any food, is the water drinkable, is the water not drinkable, and you take that animal and it goes to a vet and then it goes to a shelter and it's given food and water, within a few weeks that animal looks awesome. And you can't then produce that animal in court and say, look at this abused animal. And you've got this sleek, well-fed dog, you know, in the court. So you've got hey, to have those photos. Listen, um, let's, again, I, I, I know you're a happy person. I, I know our, our podcast listeners are. But again, Bruce and I were talking about this in, in our preparation. And there's one case, which wasn't neglect. 
And it was clear systemic abuse to make money, to profit off abuse of animals. And that is organized crime links to uh, dog fighting. Uh, tell us a little bit about dog fighting, in particular, the bait animals. Well, dog fighting is possibly the most vicious thing um, out there. Um, certainly, and I mean, there are many awful things done to animals, but animal fighting, it's not just dogs. Um, cop fighting is another one. Um, I know the most about dog fighting out of the two of them. But yeah, it's just incredibly vicious um, because you're, you're, you're raising animals um, for what is called gameness. Um, and they are bred for a quality called gameness. And gameness in a dog is a dog that will fight to the death. It has response to no visual or uh, any other signs from another dog. So if the other dog is going into the submissive pose and things like that, the game dog, the dog that has gameness doesn't care. It just keeps right on going. Um, and one of the ways that they train these animals are with what are called bait animals, bait dogs. Um, and bait dogs are simply there to be um, destroyed, essentially. Um, they are thrown in there, there for the other dog, the dog that they're training to be a fighting dog, um, to just train on and bite and, you know, do whatever they're going to do to it. I mean, they, they rip them apart. Sometimes these bait dogs survive. They have horrible injuries, the bite marks on them. Um, oftentimes, and it's the same for the fighting dogs themselves, their ears and their tails are roughly cut off so that the other dog has nothing to hang on to um, during the fight. Um, they'll sometimes have their teeth removed. Um, their teeth might be filed down. Um, and so the, the bait dogs really there, and one of the sad things um, about bait dogs is oftentimes they're people's pets that got stolen or somebody posts an animal on Craigslist free to a good home um, or on the internet. And people will grab these, unscrupulous people will grab them and these are your bait dogs. Um, and they are simply there to train the, the fighting dog. This isn't some weird psychological trait of a mass murderer. They're doing this to these poor pets, to these bait dogs, quote, to make money because of gambling, because of sports gambling, because of this, this inhuman things. Uh, of course, when you talk um, dog fighting, you talk Michael Vick, mm -hmm. the uh, quarterback of the in, in the NFL. And, and, and uh, in my opinion, was quite rightly banned uh, for a year and then has gone back to considerable success in the National Football League. In fact, there's a debate now whether he should be, um, uh, you know, he should be allowed to enter into the Hall of Fame because of his accomplishments on the football field. That is a one-word debate in my uh, lexicon. No, no, like no, like just no. Anyone who can have a part in such inhuman cruelty. I, thanks, Virginia, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm proselytizing, <laughs> but Bruce, this is a constant problem with, with, with your, your partner in crime. I, I get on this saying, I'm just... Yeah, I mean, I mean, Michael Vick is possibly the most notorious case because at the time this all came to light, he was the highest paid player in the NFL. And that is a, you know, among considerable... He didn't need to do this. He didn't <laughs> need... He didn't yeah. need to do it. I mean, there are different motivations and dog fighting also has different levels. You've got the Michael Vick level, which is highly organized, tons of money in that, a lot of betting money, um, a lot of resources. I mean, he really had quite the setup at his um, house in Virginia, Surrey, Virginia, 
um, because he had black painted buildings so that they were hard to see from the sky. It was behind black fences. It was really a very elaborate organized setup. But then you go right down to the person, you know, living who has a dog that they think is a game dog. Um, and so you have very different levels of organization for this. But there are different motivations at the very high end with the organized ones, tens of thousands of dollars on a single fight um, in terms of gambling, um, decent sized purses at the end for the winner. Um, where you go to the less organized ones, often there you're looking more at the individual, it's power, it's, you know, um, going to be a little sexist here. It's my masculinity through my dog, you know, that type of thing. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different motivations depending on whether we're talking the highly organized dog fighting that Michael Vick was organized in versus the everyday. But, you know, one thing they have in common um, and, you know, sorry, this is another one that's hard to hear, um, is outside of the bait dogs, the fighting dogs themselves, if they lose the fight, they are often executed in horrible, horrible ways. Michael Vick himself, um, event, he lied several times, but eventually um, he admitted to drowning dogs that lost fights. He admitted to hanging them. Um, there was another dog out of the ones that he owned. Um, what they did was they soaked the dog in water and then connected it to electricity um, to make it more conductive. Um, well, Virginia, so this is this. Uh, I mean, we're getting it goes into. On. Look, uh, let, let let me read uh, our listeners something um, that was in the magazine article, and then I've got a question for you. Okay. A dog crate dumped in woodland contains skeletal remains of an animal that has been wrapped with duct tape. The locking mechanism of the crate and the zip ties that can be examined for DNA and other evidence left by the individual who placed the animal in the crate. Mm -hmm. Virginia, what is it like being a forensic scientist and seeing on a daily basis that kind of stuff? How do you deal with it on a personal level? You know, when I was in the forensic lab, um, in Connecticut, and it was actually one of the reasons that um, I started to really look into animal cruelty and what we could do for it, was one of the th things that struck me, and I left there in 2007, was that after 15 years and hundreds, thousands of cases, not a single one involving an animal victim, because we just didn't have the resources to do it. And that's one of the reasons that now I have the opportunity um, that I'm looking at what can we do and we can obviously talk about that um, But you know, I worked on heinous cases um, With human victims and you know again, it's the same with animal victims and looking at horrible pictures and videos and stories is I think you have to be able to somewhat compartmentalize um, and you know also understand what you're reading or looking at is very difficult, but there's a purpose to it and you want to do some good um, with it at the end, but it's very difficult, very difficult. So Virginia, do you, do, you have a, do you have a routine or did you have a routine like one room was for the awful dark thing and you put your uniform on and go in and do that and then you would leave it in that room? How, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, when in going back to my time at the lab, it was really when I walked out of that building at the end of the day, it was like you took that lab coat off and you had to take the cases off right along with it. Um, you couldn't take that, that type of stuff home with you. you. You had to walk away from it at some point. 
Another question. Uh, Bruce and I have been joined by an amazing, one of my amazing students, Aaron Griffin. Uh, she uh, was one of my top students in international sports corruption and, and was really impressed with her working when she was doing interviews of, you know, um, major figures in sports corruption. How do the Aaron Griffins in the future who are listening to our podcast, uh, students who are looking for a direction to get into forensic science and or stopping animal cruelty or any other kind of cruelty, what do they do? What, what, what are the things that they should be looking at in courses to be taking? Well, you know, there are, there are courses I'm teaching now, um, a course at University of New Haven in forensic investigation of animal cruelty. It's the only one in the forensic program. Um, it's just about the only one in any science program um, in the country. Um, so there are courses like that. I'm working on some other courses, developing a program that is more geared towards this. Um, but, you know, courses in investigation, courses in forensic science, things like that. Um, and being willing to go out there and get involved. There are wonderful organizations like the Animal Legal Defense Fund who are out of the West Coast. Um, who provide legal support um, to prosecuting animal cases. So there are many different ways of getting involved um, in trying to get some of these cases. And then I'm working um, with Professor Rubin at UConn um, on a partnership, hopefully ultimately a center, um, to uh, investigate animal cruelty and whether it is to provide the support that different organizations need, whether it's the legal support um, from her end, or whether it's more the forensic science support from my end. Um, and to help get out there, we need to provide training. Um, a lot of the people who are responding to animal uh, animal cruelty cases don't have any training in chain of and, custody. And, and, and don't know that. probably what our listeners now know is that the, this is a red flag for all kinds of other behavior. Flag. It's bad in itself. In this. Um, a high school student, they should be focused mostly on sciences, mostly on biology, chemistry, those kind of things? Um, someone that is interested in coming at this from the forensic science standpoint, um, absolutely biology, chemistry, math. Um, if you want to go and do a forensic science degree, that is where your strengths have to lie. There's no way around that. If you're more interested in the investigative side of it, then, you know, a criminal justice, investigative services, police sciences um, type of degree would be a great fit if that's, awesome. if that's where your interest lies. Virginia Maxwell, thank you both for coming on Crime Waves with Bruce and me today. And also thank you very much for your important, incredibly important work against uh, animal cruelty. Thanks, Virginia. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to what I'll use the word difficult uh, episode. I know it's been tough in times and places to listen to the treatment, the maltreatment of innocent animals. And that link between maltreatment of animals and serial killers and sociopaths and psychopaths. Anyway, thank you for sticking with it. Uh, Professor Virginia Maxwell is a brilliant colleague and scholar. She's just opened a center here at the University of New Haven, particularly in this research. For yourselves, please, uh, myself and the producers, I uh, would love it if you would subscribe, if you would recommend this to your friends, if you just follow us on, uh, be it LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever your social media of your choice is. And as always, we look forward to your company next week for a new episode of Crime Waves Podcast.